Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You didn't have to. You could have kept us in the dark, but you've not. You've not done that. You've, you've spoken through uh, people that you have raised up by the power of your spirit to give us a revelation of what you're doing in history. And we give you thanks for that. It is hopeful. It is good. Uh, your love is poured forth in Christ and your peace is coming. And we pray that you would help us to see all of those things as we consider your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So every day in the U.S., uh, 2000, uh, I'm sorry, eight to nine thousand people die here in, the, in, in our country. And every day about 10,000 people are born. OK, so in the, in that birth rate has been kind of steadily declining over the last over the last years, a few years. Um, but people die. People are born. And this is sort of the, the pattern of life. There's a, it feels as though like when you're young, life feels so automatic. It feels certain. It feels inevitable. Like you just maybe every once in a while when you're young, you get a little flash of your mortality, but it's fleeting. And then at some point, maybe it's middle age, uh, you begin to realize I'm just one little wave in thousands of generational waves that have come and go. We're born. We die. A wave rises and it crashes to its death and a new wave comes. And that's life. It's just this cycle. The author of Ecclesiastes, I think, explains it pretty well in the first chapter. It says a generation goes, a generation comes. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea's never full. To the place where the streams flow and the streams, they just keep going, but it never fills up. Everything's just sort of like trapped in this cycle of futility. Born, we die, the sun rises, but it goes back to where it began. The wind it blows, but it comes back to where it goes and it just keeps going in circles. There's this cyclical nature to life. And, you know, David, there's a historian named a British historian named David Bebbington. He wrote a book called Patterns in History. And he's explaining how different eras have thought about history. He says the ancient people thought of history, the way they like framed it was in a cyclical pattern. They looked at their lives. They said we're born and we, we were fully dependent and we grow to relative independence and then we become dependent again and we die. We go from the dust and to dust we return. And they looked at the seasons around them and they said, oh, there's we got fall, winter, spring. Seasons of harvest, season of, of sowing, all of these things. And so they they assume that life itself followed that same kind of cyclical pattern. And so they, they thought of history that way. Now, when I was in uh, college, I was in Tibet, in Lhasa, the capital city, studying there. And we were surrounded by Buddhist temples and Buddhist imagery and prayer flags and, and all sorts of Buddhist imagery and things. And one of the things that struck me were these swastikas that were all over the place. Now, we, you hear that word and you think the, the Nazi, the German Nazis, right? But this is an ancient, it's a Buddhist symbol, the swastika. And it, it represents this cycle of life. 
right? Think, think about the swastika. It's like, a, it's like four poles that are bent in and they're moving in a cyclical fashion. And this, was, this is the Buddhist idea that we're sort of trapped in this cycle. We're trapped. And I think our text this morning really highlights this cyclical pattern that we feel in life, right? The generational waves are crashing as, as Isaac, one generation dies, and as Rachel, the next generation dies. But in the midst of all of that death, new life springs in Benjamin. And then there's also sin in this passage. So I want us to consider death, life, sin, and our only hope. Those are our considerations this morning. Death, life, sin, and our only hope. Let's, let's, let's begin at the end, though, here with the death of Isaac. Look at verses 27 through 29. It says, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Now, Jacob, remember, remember several months ago when we last saw Jacob and Isaac together? Things weren't great. Jacob had totally deceived his dad, hoodwinked him. And, uh, and Isaac was, was upset. Isaac charged his son Jacob to go find a wife, not in the land of the Canaanites, but back in the father's homeland. But as far as we can tell, this is the first time they've been reunited. And it appears that they've experienced some sort of reconciliation. And not long after his arrival, it says that uh, verse 29, or actually, let's, let's go back to verse 28 there. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years in verse 29, Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Remember, Isaac had a brush with death at age 14. His father put him on the altar, raised the knife and was about to sacrifice him, his son. Um, and, and then turns out the Lord provides, provides a ram in the thicket and Isaac lives a long life, 180 years. And look who shows up to bury him, both Jacob and Esau. Again, there's, there's this hope that the reconciliation that took back a few chapters when Jacob encountered Esau and his military. And they, they, there was this gracious interaction from Esau that that's continued, that there's still reconciliation. That the death of Isaac brought the brothers together. Now, there's Isaac's death. It's the closing of a chapter in the life of the patriarchs. I want us to focus, though, on the death of Rachel, Jacob's uh, beloved wife. So look at verses 16 through 20 again. It says they, they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Now, there's a, there's a lot to explore here. I believe, we mentioned this several, several weeks ago, but I believe that Rachel's gods, the idol in her life, was childbearing. Remember, we talked about Laban's idols this is several weeks ago. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones gives us a wonderful definition of what an idol is in our life, something that we worship. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that's central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that's essential to me. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time, my attention, my energy, my money, anything that holds a controlling position in my life. That's an idol. So, and, you know, our, our, our faith teaches us, I think John, it was John Calvin that said our, our hearts are an idol factory. They're just constantly whipping up a host of idols. But in Rachel's life, it seems as though children are her idols. That's what she wants. Now, how do we know that? Remember, remember the envy sermon in chapter 30? Verse one of Genesis, what does Rachel go? And she tells Jacob something very insightful. She tells him, demands of him, give me children or I die. Right. My whole life depends upon the bearing of children. Give me children, Jacob. And that may be an excellent diagnostic question to to expose, to understand idols in our own life. What is it? That if you don't get it, you want to die. You think you will die. It sucks the life out of you. What is it that if you don't get it, you want to die? Now, it can, and it could be good things. It could be good things like children, kids. What is it that if you don't get it, you want to die? Is it workplace honor, workplace success, big family, the perfect spouse? The best food uh, for every meal. It can be religious things like the respectability that comes from being kind of a church going person. It may even be non-religious. It may be the respectability that comes from shunning church going people. All of these things can kind of take a, a controlling position. Some good, some bad. They can take a controlling position in our life and they begin to dictate to us how we live our habits. And here's the thing, if, if a created thing, that's, that's, if, it, if a created thing drives your lives, it will begin to dull your heart, it will dull your mind, and eventually, eventually, it will kill you. This is what Psalm, uh, the Psalms say, that those who make the idols that are lifeless and can't hear and can't see and they can't move and they can't talk back, they become like them. They get hardened hearts and eyes and they can't see. And then eventually they become petrified. They they die from false worship. That's what the scriptures teach. And here's the thing. Look at what happens. Do you see what happens here? Rachel dies doing the very thing she lived for. Isn't that ironic? She dies doing the very thing that she lived for. She said, if I don't get children, I die. Here she's delivering a child. And in that... She dies, and it's, it's the tragic end for idolatry. You know, first, idolatry blinds us to all the blessings that we have in life, and we begin to fixate on the thing that we don't have. Rachel, remember Rachel? All of the, the gifts, that she, she was beautiful. She had her father's love, as far as we could tell. She had the love of Jacob, but it wasn't enough. She looked at her sister Leah, who did not have Jacob's love, and did not, it appears, did not have her father's love. The, the ugly duckling 
of the, of the sisters. She, and, and Rachel looked at Leah and said, I want what she has. Leah has all the children. I want that. And she couldn't see the, all the blessings that she had. She became ungrateful, grumbly, difficult to be around, I would imagine. And then, so, so, so idolatry begins to uh, blind us, it, it numbs us, and then eventually it destroys us. And look at what happens. This is, uh, this is significant. When we exalt good things to an ultimate thing, look at what happens. Did you see what she named her son? Ben-Oni. Um, it, it, it literally means son of sorrow or son of trouble. Like the good thing, the thing that she wanted, childbearing, that had become an ultimate thing, became for her a source of sorrow, a source of pain. And this is what this is. what. Now, of course, she's delivering. She's dying as she's to delivering this baby. So that's going on, too. I'm like, I'm dying. Um, but but there's something else here that the, when the ultimate thing becomes a good thing, it becomes a source of sorrow for us. Right. You know, the Bible speaks of alcohol as something that brings joy to the heart. It's a gift to get the Bible actually speaks of alcohol as a gift. But to the alcoholic, to the person who's taken a gift and made it an ultimate thing. What is alcohol for them? Benoni, right? A, a source of sorrow, a source of trouble. And when the alcohol doesn't, uh, doesn't give the kick, the, 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 the response that you want, you take more of it and it becomes more sorrowful. It creates more sorrow in your heart. And this is how, this is how addiction, this is how alcohol works. Uh, think about um, sexual addiction. This goes without saying that we, we've, ex- we've experienced, we've witnessed the pro- proliferation of pornography in the last 20 years. And something interesting has happened. There's a trend that young men in their 20s who have been using excessive pornography have found themselves unable to enjoy the, the thing that they have organized their hours around. Pornographic use. Incapable of, of it. Of, of, of sexual enjoyment. Because of excessive pornographic use. This is what idolatry does. It takes the thing, the gift... Like in the case of sex, something to be enjoyed within the context of a covenantal union. And it makes us, it makes it always elude us. We lose it. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it loses its gift, gift and it becomes a source of sorrow. It becomes Benoni. I mean, you could say the same with children. If you put all of your hope and all of your dreams and all of your life into your kids, They might disappoint you. They're not living up to the dreams that you have for them. Or you might start being envious of the other kids that are doing what you maybe hoped for your own kids. When a gift becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a source of sorrow in our lives. That's how sin works. That's how idolatry works, works. And we see it happening here in the case of Rachel. Her life comes to a, a sad end. Uh, in the midst of her getting what she called out for God for children. And you'll notice that Jacob quickly renames Ben-Oni to Benjamin, which literally means son of my right hand. Uh, You might translate it son of of skill uh, or son of honor is one way to translate it. So it puts kind of a, a more positive spin on the name of Benjamin. And with the birth of Benjamin, an important development 
in the history of Israel. The 12 tribes now have, each tribe has its father now. Look at, look at verses 22, uh, verse B. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, uh, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So we've seen death, the death of Isaac, the death of Rachel. We've seen new life spring up and give hope for the, the whole 12, the whole nation of Israel is now complete with the birth of Benjamin. Now I want us to consider uh, sin, which is another pattern in the cycle of life that we see. And look at what happens. Verse 22 It says, while Jacob, while Israel, uh, remember his new name, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, this is a this is a wicked thing that Reuben does, and it's it's probably best to understand this not as being driven so much by lust on the part of Reuben, but by driven by power. You see, there has been remember, Rachel has just died and Rachel is Jacob's number one wife, his number one spouse, his favorite. And by the way, you know, we talk about the Bible does speak of polygamy. In every instance, the thing's a disaster. It's disastrous. I mean, I, Jacob may be the best example of how bad things get with this whole polygamy, polygamous system. But, but, but here we have Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, has died. So who's, who's Jacob going to pick to be his next favorite wife? Possibly Bilhah. That's Rachel's servant, not Leah. Remember who Reuben's mom is? Leah. So Reuben sleeps with Bilhah so as to defile her. And disqualify her for be, for, from being Jacob's number one wife. So that in hopes that his mother, Leah, would be number one. That's likely what's going on in this sin. But the sin of Reuben, as it always does, brings disarray and disintegration into this family. And also creates an important development in the story of salvation. If you look at Genesis 49, when Jacob is... Blessing his sons. Listen to what he says about Reuben. This is uh, chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, Jacob says, as he's blessing his sons at the end of the book, you are my firstborn, my might, the firstborn of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. In verse 4, yet you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob says. So this sin in Jacob's tent produces further strain and division within this family. And that's what sin sin does. It breaks down. And it provides us with a really important plot development. Remember, this is the family of faith. God has raised up Abraham to bring, to be a blessing to the nations and to bless the nations through him. Okay? And as the scriptures unfold, it becomes clear that all of these promises are going to hinge on an individual, the anointed one, the Messiah. Okay, so the question is, where where is God working through all of these 12 tribes? Is it through, you would think it would be through the firstborn, Reuben. It's not Reuben. He disqualified himself right here in this moment. 
Would it be Simeon and Levi? They're next in line. Look back at verse 22. This is the order, the birth order of the sons. Would it be Reuben? Reuben disqualified. Is it Simeon and Levi? No, they're disqualified. Remember the violent act where they went in and slaughtered the men of the Hivite village? They're not in, in the mix. The next one in line, look at who it is. Judah. And we're going to see as the story unfolds, Judah is the one through whom God is going to work out his purposes. Now, Judah is a flawed individual. And we're going to see that. But nonetheless, God's going to work on him over the course of the story. So that's kind of a sneak peek of where this is going. Now, uh, for generations, these 12 tribes will grow up. There will be skirmishes within them. There will be fighting. There will be civil war. There will be the division of the kingdom of the tribes into north and south. The Assyrians will destroy. There will be pressures from within, right? In civil war, there will be pressures from without. As the Assyrians will obliterate many of the tribes and they will get lost through uh, cultural appropriate. They'll just kind of get absorbed by the culture. And all but two of these tribes survive. Judah and Benjamin, the only two that make it. And so what I want us to see here, are you, are you feeling the hope here? <laughs> um, it's not very hopeful, right? I mean, there, Benjamin's just going to die. He, he was born, that's great, but he's going to die. The 12 tribes, they're all intact right now. They're all there. But man, those, there's tensions between them, thanks to the polygamy part. There's tensions, and we're going to see that spring up very soon. Um, and there's, those tensions are going to continue through the generations. This whole thing seems just so tenuous, precarious, this whole plan of salvation. And this passage, I believe, highlights our situation, our lot, right? Remember Ecclesiastes again, generation comes, a generation goes, the sun rises, the sun sets, it goes back to the place where it began and the streams that pour into the ocean, but the ocean never fills. There's futility to life. There's this cyclical nature. We were born, we grow, we fade, we die. And in the meantime, there's disappointment, there's breakdown, there's sin. What goes around comes around. You know, one of the symbols that, that, that really captures this sense of futility and the cyclical nature of life. Remember what it is? It's the swastika. Now, here's the interesting thing. Swastikas are found in the ancient world on, on every continent. Isn't that interesting? Asian cultures have it. African cultures, European cultures. That's why the Nazis revived it. They believed it was an ancient kind of Aryan symbol. So they revived it. The, the Americas, Native Americans used the symbol. They all had that symbol because I think it resonates. The picture itself resonates with the human experience of feeling trapped within a cycle that we can't get out of. We're stuck in a cycle of failure, of sin, of death. And we, we, new life arrives and it's a wonderful moment, but it's bittersweet because we know that the new life is going to face challenges and sin and eventually death. We, the, the new life is entering a world where we find suffering and pain and death. That's the cycle. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through four captures it well. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you came into this world, you were kicking and screaming and crying, but spiritually, you were stillborn. You were dead. You had no life. 
And you were walking, you, you were following the course of this world, verse 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Following the world, you were following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See that you see the situation? It's dire. It doesn't matter how many times you made the honor roll growing up. Doesn't matter if you got accepted by the Ivy League college or you won a state championship or you married the man of your dreams or you had the perfect family or you won the lottery. None of those things, none of those things can break the cycle. Success in any of those arenas, you're still going to die. You're still spiritually dead. You're still following the course of this world and following the, the, the you're enslaved to Satan. That's what Paul's saying here. We're locked in death and sin. And that's what we see here. But then verse four, Ephesians chapter two, verse four, two of the most important words in all of scripture. You know what they are? But God. But God. And we could read the rest of Ephesians, but it explains the sweeping intervention of God. What God has come in to do through Christ. He's broken the cycle. Think about Jesus's ministry. When he came and he walked and he ministered, he's, he's doing these miracles. And what are these miracles doing? They're disrupting the cycle. That's what they're doing. People are hungry all the time. We started Jesus is feeding. Hunger is normal. Being fed, the hungry being fed, that's, that's exceptional, right? Sickness is normal and people are sick. And Jesus comes and he brings miraculous healing. People are actually dead in the Gospels. What does Jesus do? He brings them to life. He's bringing life. Do you remember how many people Jesus had with him? How many disciples followed him? Twelve. Why do you think he chose twelve? It's a walking, talking picture of what he's doing. Right? The twelve tribes. They're all lost, but Judah and Benjamin. And here's this Messiah who's walking around promising to deliver his people. He's got twelve guys with him. He's, He's uniting the tribes. He's bringing, he came to seek and save the lost tribes of Israel. But not just the lost tribes of Israel. He came to seek and save the Gentile, the nations. And his gospel, right? What we talked about, we talked about every week. Last week, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything. Now, I mentioned being in Lhasa, Tibet, surrounded by these swastikas in Buddhist temples and, and Buddhist places. And at the time I was reading a book by uh, G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man. And he talks about how Christ is the fulfillment of all history. It's a wonderful book. But I'm, I'm reading that and he starts talking about these. I, I never, it never occurred to me that the, the, the Buddhists use the swastika. I don't, just had not seen that before. So I've seen these symbols and I'm kind of confused. Like, why, are they, why did the Germans take that symbol? And then Chesterton starts talking about these swastikas. He says they represent the, 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 the entrapment of humans that we're entrapped in this cycle of death. You know, we can't get out. That's what, the, that's what the thing represents. And then listen to what he says. You ready? He says, the swastika is actually a crooked cross bent in. It's a crooked cross. He says, the cross, in fact, as well as actual shape and figure, really does stand for the idea of breaking out of the circle that is everything. 
and nothing. The actual cross of the, the, the shape of the cross. If you take a swastika and you bend its arms out in every direction, you have a cross. In its very shape, it represents the idea of breaking out of this cycle of death, out of the cycle of sin. The work of Christ changes everything. He overcame the grave. He overcame death. The problems of this passage right here that we just looked at are all dealt with fully in the death and resurrection of Christ. But here's the thing. Seeing this change is not always easy. We still bury our loved ones as Jacob does. We still see our children sin as Jacob does. We still sin as Jacob does. And this is, this is the tension of the Christian life, right? The kingdom has already arrived. It's here. It's at hand. But it's oftentimes hard to see. It largely remains hidden. It's in so many ways. It's in seed form. So what do we do in the difficult context of living between kind of between the ages, between the fulfillment of the kingdom. We do what Jacob does here in this passage. Look at verse 21, what Jacob does. Rachel dies, his beloved Rachel. She dies in verse 21. What does it say? Israel journeyed on and he pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. And that's what we do. We journey on in the walk of faith. We keep walking the walk of faith. The same walk that... Grandfather Abraham walked the same walk that that father Isaac walked. Jacob is now walking this walk of faith. And they're, you know, they're they're aliens in the in their promised land. Isn't that I mean, that's just it's just an awkward fact. We're here because we're moving in here. Oh, yeah. Where's your land? Oh, we don't have any. We're living in tents. We're nomads right now. But it's been promised to us three generations later. Nobody really has any land to speak of in the promised land. They're walking. That's what it means to walk in faith between the ties, between between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Listen to how the author of Hebrews explains it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses eight through 10. In that great chapter, the the kind of the hall of faith, as it's described, it says, uh, verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, promised land. But they were foreigners. They were living in tents, little temporary lean-tos. There was no established kingdom there for Abraham. But verse 10, he was looking for Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And this is, our, this is our walk. This is the walk of faith, right? The old world is dying, it's passing away, and the new one is coming, it's breaking in. And we walk in this difficult transition period between the ages. We're pilgrims, we're aliens. Now, one of the big questions for us that we have to wrestle with, because it's just, it, an honest, as honest Christians, you have to wrestle with it. How do we get from here pilgrims and aliens to there, to the land of promise. And there's an answer. We focused on it last week and you'll notice again, it's on the front of your order of worship. That's the answer of how we get from here to the kingdom, to the land of promise. You see what it is? Kids, empty tomb. It's the, it's the resurrection. 
That's how we get from here to there. Christ is bringing forth his resurrection power to wow the world and comfort his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your promises. We pray that you would sustain us as we try to live in light of them, as we uh, try to behold Christ and follow him as uh, the fathers of our faith did. Um, Give us your strengthen us in your spirit, we pray, and help us to continue to uh, see and taste your goodness and the reality of your promises to us as we come to the table in a moment. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.